0: Welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. Uh, This episode, we talked to Dr. Tom Ord. um, And he's a theologian that uh, he has some really great ideas that um, have been really helpful for me. Uh, He talks about open and relational theology. And um, I really wanted to have him on the podcast so that we could kind of really dig into that this idea of uh, uncontrolling love of God and why. You know why there's evil in the world, and God doesn't stop it. And it was such a a really life-giving, I think, um, conversation. At least it was for me. What do you think, Maggie?
1: I absolutely loved this conversation. I had known about Tom uh, uh, for many years. I hadn't read all of his stuff. There was a pastor that I uh, used to work with many years ago that told me that another church that I had been involved with, uh, he thought that this is where the pastor was coming from. This open and relational theology point of view. And so I uh, was interested, I was very intrigued by Tom's work many years ago, but I just hadn't really kind of dove into it until we were going to have him on the podcast. And I started doing more research. And um, admittedly, I uh, went into this conversation kind of uh, worried, like almost like clutching my pearls, kind of worried of like, I think this guy's a heretic. This is like totally different than anything that I would possibly expect to ever, um, you know, connect with. And then we had this incredible conversation and I really understood where he was coming from and uh, agree with so much of it. So uh, I just think that this conversation is a really important, for me at least, it was a really important reminder that dialogue is so important. That no matter what your views are going into a conversation, it's not about changing someone's mind, but just having an open dialogue about it. And you might learn something. And I would say now, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been kind of uh, mulling around on this since we had this conversation. And I really am taking a lot of it um, into my own personal walk with God.
0: Yeah, that's a good point that you bring up about going into a conversation with a sense of curiosity about what the other person has to bring and offer. And, and I know that I, I struggle with that a lot. I often tend to, you know, make up my mind. And, and, and so I, I approach it with a closed a closed mind and, and closed ears essentially. And, and I don't hear what they're really saying, but, but, um, but that's a good point. I'm glad that you were able to do that. And um, yeah, I'm, as far as the heretic goes, I think Tom probably has, Heard that many times about uh, his work, and uh, he has um, he has such a great uh, heart and uh, a really humble spirit. I think, and so I think you'll hear that come through in this episode.
1: Yep. So. And I want to be clear: I do not think that he is a heretic <laughs> 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 any longer. Okay, I was a yes. little bit worried <laughs> going in, like I said, but at the same time, I uh, love things that aren't of the norm when it comes to theology anyway so i was excited about this conversation but at the same time i uh, i kind of went into it thinking oh I, this is just going to be a conversation for our podcast and i uh, will just be like that was that was an interesting point of view you know mm-hmm. moving on but i really uh like i said i'm a convert now
0: Today we have a special guest with us, Thomas J. Ord. Tom is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's a best-selling and award-winning author, having written or edited more than twenty-five books. He directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. A twelve-time faculty award-winning professor, Tom reaches, teaches at institutions around the globe. He is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. Thank you for being with us today, Tom.
2: My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation, Chris and Maggie.
0: And so are we. Awesome. Uh, very glad to have you with us. Um, I want to kind of give a little bit of background on how I came across your work and um, just so that our listeners kind of have some background. So I had stumbled upon a podcast a couple of years ago called Messy Spirituality with Jason Elam,
3: Mm.
0: and I joined their Facebook group. And in that group, there was a lot of talk and mention of your books, especially your book called God Can't. And I I later heard Jason interview you on his podcast. I think it was last August. Yeah. And um, what you said there really resonated with me. I had been wrestling a lot with how god could allow evil in the world and not stop it and i was already starting to think that this idea of uh, of a sovereign god who's in control of everything was just not ringing true with the reality i saw Mm -hmm. around me Mm -hmm. um so i ended up buying one of your other books called the uncontrolling love of god because i tend to like the more academic ones (laughs) and and i read it in a weekend It's so good, and it finally gave me a theological basis for what I was already feeling. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, so you definitely have been a big help for me, and I know lots of other people as well, Um, and I know, you know, it it comes with the territory. I'm sure you get a lot of pushback for your ideas, but they're very Oh, no, everyone
2: embraces them, you know. Uh. Yeah.
0: so you know know, it but you know but what you what you talk about in your books is very freeing when you find Mm. yourself and you know some people are ready to just give up the idea that there's even a god at all right and a lot of people yeah yeah so so anyway i i really appreciate uh what you've written and the things that you say on 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 all the podcasts i've heard you on and so i'm really glad to have you to talk about it more today um but before we get you know, into the deep end of open and relational theology. I want to learn more about you and your, your background and kind of where you, where you grew up and how you grew up in the church and some of the things that kind of led you down the path that you're on now.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I grew up in a little farming town in Eastern Washington state. My uh, father has a Dutch reformed theological background. He was a school teacher and counselor and, um, My mother had a Pentecostal holiness background, and they uh, got together, moved to this little town, and we went to the Church of the Nazarene, a denomination of which I'm still an ordained elder and have taught in several other institutions. And uh, church was a huge part of our life. I mean, I gave my life to Jesus many times as a young person. And by the time I got into college, I was a real avid evangelist, you know, i knew the Bible and and was an apologist and did a lot of street witnessing, that sort of thing. And then near the end of my college career, I took a course in philosophy of religion. And in that course, I read really smart people who don't believe in God, who are agnostic or other faith traditions. And um, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I had to admit that the reasons I had for believing in God weren't nearly as firm as I thought they were. In fact, I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, and uh, telling her, I just can't believe in God anymore. And it was intellectual reasons for not believing in God. Um, I wasn't an, an agnostic or atheist for very long because I kept at thinking through the questions and looking for plausible answers. And I eventually came back to belief in God based primarily on two things. One, this sense that I thought there ought to be an ultimate meaning to life and that there ought to be a ground for this meaning that most people call God. And I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to be loving, that in some sense, love was the answer. And um Those intuitions didn't make a lot of sense if they also didn't have some sort of spring from which they came that, again, most people call God. And so from that kind of basis, I began to build and rethink and try to make sense of a plausible way to believe God exists and live in the world. Um, uh, For a long time, my theology was pretty thin. You know, I believed there was a loving God. I thought Jesus is pretty cool, and that's about it. And um, over the years, I've added more ideas and more things that I think make sense. But I want to say at the beginning of our conversation, what I'm going to be presenting today are not things I know with absolute certainty, like they didn't fall from heaven into my brain, or they aren't logical proofs. But they are ideas that I think, really help make a lot of sense. They're the best ideas I know at least. And uh, if you come up with better ones, I'll switch to those. But my quest is to try to make the best sense of God and life and how we ought to live.
1: I appreciate that so much, just the humility and just the the, uh, willingness to say, I might be wrong. (laughs) <laughs> you know? Um, but this is what works for me in my relationship with God. And, uh, and so who is anyone to argue with anybody when you know that that is what, you know, you said, um, talking about that love is really important. And I feel like that's such a, a novel concept, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, you think that it would be not so novel. Um, but if that is, if how you are experiencing God is, uh, driving you to be a more loving human that looks more like Jesus, then like, I love, I love that. And so I'm so, this is why I love hearing different ideas because this is why it's so uh, good to force our hands to remain open and say, Hey, yeah, we might be wrong. We might get to heaven and be like, Oh, we, we were very wrong, but to uh,
2: be willing is
1: important. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, what I want most in my life, Maggie, I mean, the thing that I think about every day of my life, often every morning, I want to be a person who lives a life of love. I want to love in all the dimensions of my life. I, I like to put it this way. I wouldn't be a follower of Jesus if Jesus wasn't a lover. But Jesus is the best lover I know. And that's why I'm, I try to pattern my life after his love. And uh, I think if you take the themes of love and you put them at the center of your life and your theology, things kind of develop in ways that are contrary to the way most people think about God. In fact, contrary to a lot of the sophisticated professional theology today and throughout church history. Um, And so I'm trying to follow the themes of love, not only in the way I sort of live my life with my family, friends and foes, but also think conceptually through the framework of love to make sense of the biggest questions we ask in our lives.
1: Tell us about some of those big questions, Tom.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest questions I assume we're going to talk about in a little bit is why people suffer and God doesn't stop it. But I'll bracket that one just for a moment and mention a few others. Um, another big question if there's a God, why doesn't this God explain things clearly, simply, and make it absolutely crystal clear what we ought to do and how we ought to think? If there is a God who's able to make revelation crystal clear, then why are there so many different religions, different Christian denominations, different understandings of the Bible? I think inconsistencies within the bible if this god really cares about getting the message across and our salvation hinges upon us having an understanding of that that message why wouldn't this god make it crystal clear Uh, that's another big question you mean the bible
0: doesn't clearly say (laughs) x y or z
2: right right the bible is a great example of this um You know, I think there's a way to interpret the Bible that keeps it at the center of my devotional life. But it's not a way that I used to think as a kid in which I thought the Bible has no errors and was like a systematic theology that everything fit neatly together. And, you know, somehow God wanted us to love our enemies. But other times God called people to bash babies' heads against the rocks. Uh, That just makes no sense to me now. And I'm willing to say that.
0: But because God commanded it, then that is good and right. But yeah, that's which is completely, you know, yep. it's cognitive dissonance and the worst kind.
2: <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: what other questions did did you have more?
2: I think a lot of people have just a general question. Of what's the purpose of life? What should I be doing with myself? And people have given a lot of different answers. I suspect you'd get an idea of what my answer would be when I say that I think I want to be a person who pursues love. But I think pursuing love takes a variety of dimensions. And, you know, love looks different in different situations with people with different gifts and interests and backgrounds. And so um, figuring out the purpose of life is a big question that people have. Um, I think a lot of people want to know... um, Is there some kind of afterlife? Is this life all we have? And then we get really speculative. I happen to believe there is an afterlife, but my view of the afterlife differs from the way a lot of Christians in the pews think of the afterlife. What about the beginning? Did God create? Is God creating now? Another big set of questions that I think uh, have better answers if we start with love and rethink God's power. So I could go on and on, but those are a few.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that, you know, in wrestling with these questions, that, um, that is kind of what led you down this path of embracing um, open and relational theology, which you write a lot about now. So can you kind of give us an overview of, of what that's about and
2: how that helps answer those questions? I'd be happy to. I actually have a book coming out in July called Open and Relational Theology. And it's written, as I like to say, for my mother. It's not written for people who have uh, academic degrees, but sort of just everybody ought to be able to understand, if not all of it, most of it. Um, Open and relational theology is like a big umbrella under which sit a lot of other named theologies like open theology, process theology, relational theology. There's also some forms of feminist thought, post-colonial, lots of different things. But the big ideas that keep this umbrella afloat, you might say, or maybe we could call it the the umbrella peg that goes up, whatever, whatever the right analogy or metaphor here is, is that, number one, God is relational. Now, almost everybody I know in the churches I've been a part of thinks God is relational in the sense of giving and receiving, being influenced by what we do listening to our prayers, that kind of thing. So to say God is relational sounds to most people like, well, yeah, duh. There's nothing controversial about that. But if you look at the major Christian theologians in history and many today, they don't think God is relational. Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin. They all thought God can't be influenced or affected by anything we do, because if God was, then this would mean God changes and we didn't want a change in God. And so um, open relational theology goes with what I think is the broad biblical witness that God is really in a giving and receiving relationship with us and creation.
1: We see that in the scriptures as well. Of, oh, it's all over the you place. You know, praying to God and God saying, oh, okay, now I'll, you know, do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. I had a professor um, that said that it was the those that like push back on God that um, and said, no, God, you are wrong with what you want to do. And God said, you know, okay. And God changed God's mind, you know. Yeah. Um, and those are really the, that's the consistent theme. The people that just like said, All right, God's will, you know, there was no influencing, you know, but the people that were like, No, God, you're doing the wrong thing. And right. that's when, when God remember who changed.
2: you are, God, yep. <laughs> yeah.
1: which is yeah. love <laughs> again, yeah, exactly. a novel concept.
2: <laughs> that's right. In every one of those instances in which the, the, the people remind God who God is, it's the reminding that God that God is faithful love. They're not saying, remember, you're that tyrant who wastes people. No, they're saying, no, no, God, you can't waste people. You're loving. Um, And I think a lot of people don't realize that more than 40 times in the Old Testament, the writers say God repents. Now, to repent for God doesn't mean that God turns from sin to love. It means God has a change of mind. And to have a change of mind means that God has some kind of change, at least in the intentions God has to do uh, act in the world. And so open and relational theology embraces that and then expands and develops it in various kinds of ways. The second part of open and relational theology, the word open is used to refer to, is kind of an idea that a lot of people don't think much about, but is is pretty crucial, I think, especially for spiritual direction, spiritual formation. And this is the idea that God experiences time moment by moment, sequentially, like we do. So the past is really past for God. The present is really present. And the future is not really existing yet. It's a realm of possibilities. And this means that God then, when it says God returns or remembers or repents, like I said, or Reconciles all these words that start with R E. Those are things that God does that tell us something true about God's moment by moment life. And the most probably controversial implication of that is that the future is open for God such that God can't right now know with certainty everything that's going to happen. God knows all the possibilities, God knows probabilities, like what will probably happen. But because the future hasn't yet happened, God can't be absolutely certain about it, and therefore uh, the future is open to everyone, including God.
0: And so that seems to me that would uh, imply that uh, we have a lot of control then in how things go in our lives, in, our, in which path we take, and how the, you know outcomes can happen. Um, Can you speak about that?
2: That's right. Yeah, it's very, it fits with our intuitions about freedom or free will. We were not free to do anything. Our freedom is always limited. But yeah, we we have real agency. Our choices matter because the future is open. It's not settled. In fact, not even foreknown by God.
0: So it's like those choose your own adventure books as a kid.
2: (laughs) Yep, (laughs) yep.
1: I have a question for you. This is this was something when I was deconstructing that a pastor offered as uh, another way to view uh, God in the future and whatnot, and just how we are when it comes to like, what God's will is and all of that. And uh, what he said was, there is a thought, and I know this isn't exactly open, but I, I would just love to get hear hear your thoughts on it. But he said. Um, That God knows the past, knows the present, and knows the future, um, and knows what's going to happen, but chooses to forget the future so that God can be with us in the present. How does that sit with you? Um, I know that's not completely, that's not totally open, but yeah, what are your thoughts around that?
2: That was the view of Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard. (laughs) Really? Yes. Uh, I
1: feel like I should know that.
2: (laughs) Well, no, it, it it's actually very uncommon that people would know it. I've talked to Dallas about this, and he was very reticent to let people know that was his view because he knew it was controversial. It's even controversial in open theist circles. We accept Dallas as an open theist, but the vast majority of open theists think that God couldn't have known the future, and so therefore didn't, you know, decide to forget. But uh, Dallas was one of those people who said, "Yep, God." could know the future or did know the future in some sense and decides either decided to forget it or decided not to know it. So it was a a voluntary choice on God's part. So we accept that in our, in our tradition, we accept that as a a minority opinion.
1: (laughs) So it's not like heresy in open theology. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But because God is still omniscient, therefore, you know, it fits into like, Typical, trad- you know, traditional, I use quotes, you know, evangelical, you know, theology. Yeah, well. it is.
2: Way to go, Dallas. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, open and relational thinkers believe God is omniscient. They think God knows everything that's knowable. They just have a different list of what's knowable for God compared to what we'll call conventional theologies. Yeah. Uh, conventional theologies think the future is somehow the, the, the actual future is somehow known perfectly, exhaustively by God. And open theists say, well, there's no such thing as an actual future. There's possible futures. um, And God knows all of those possible futures. So God knows everything that's possible to know. But uh, so it's a different sort of list of what's knowable.
0: So I'd like to um, ask a little more about that idea of of God knows everything that's possible in the future. Um, Yeah. If the future is indeterminate, then um, I mean, I mean, even we as people kind of have an idea of different possibilities in the future, but we don't know the, all the you know an infinite number of possibilities. So, is that idea um, is that something that you have arrived at through um, through the scripture, or is that just a philosophical opinion or idea? Is that, a, is that necessary to even believe that, to to, to be an open theist? Or how to talk a little bit more about that idea.
2: Yeah, well, it, it, I think people come to that position taking a variety of paths. Some come to it philosophically, no doubt. Others come to it biblically. So they'll take a passage that's well known to many Christians in which God is said to have declared, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves. Then I will do X. But if they don't, I will do Y. I think Y is pluck them out of the land. (laughs) So it sounds like God says, what's going to happen here? My actions are dependent upon your response. And therefore, these are the possibilities that I see in the future. If you do this, then this possibility is going to Uh, uh, be instantiated, use a philosophical word, this possibility will become an actuality. And if you do this, then this possibility will. So, um, and there's other, you know, instances in which God makes covenants with people. And that sounds like the covenant is setting up this if then kind of set of scenarios. So uh, there's a significant number of people who come to the idea of possibilities through reading the Bible itself. Others though come through philosophy or theology, even science. Um, so there's a number of paths to that position.
0: Back to the question then of um, of evil, which you alluded to earlier. That was, you know, the question that I was really wrestling with, and as I, I know, a lot of people wrestle with that question, and many don't come to any kind of resolution on it. Um, so, tell me how how um, the open and relational theology addresses that question. And um, what are some of the still some some of the big questions that you think you still have in that area?
2: I mean, a lot of other open and relational theologians agree with my view, but there are differences. So let's just I'll just talk about my own view. Um, I think most people, no matter what tradition they're a part of, realize that the Common answers to the questions of evil are unsatisfying, like, you know, um, that everything bad that happens in the world is caused or allowed by God to teach us some kind of lesson or to build our character. I mean, there's a hint of truth in that, in that we sometimes do become better people. But we can think of tons of instances in which things turn out worse. People die and they don't have their characters improve, etc. Or the idea that everything bad that happens is God punishing the wicked. we know, lots of innocent children who are punished with pain and die. It wasn't anything they did. So that doesn't work very well. But one of the more common ones is called the free will defense. And it says because we're free and God gives us freedom, God doesn't cause the evil in the world. But God allows it or permits it because God wants free creatures. And the partial truth to that is, I, in my view, is that we do have some freedom. But the problem is that, uh, A, that answer doesn't solve questions like, why doesn't God stop the pandemic? Because you know, I don't think there's free will viruses acting in the world. Or why doesn't God stop uh, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, and other natural evils? Because again, I don't think there's free will choices being made by you know, rocks or water. And another question that's probably more obvious to a lot of people is that if God has the kind of power to constrain or take away people's freedom but chooses not to, at least sometimes it would seem to be loving to take away freedom momentarily from the rapist or, you know, the murderer or whatever. I mean, I live in Idaho, and uh, I have three daughters And behind my house, there's a a good-sized stream. And when my girls were younger, they would go out into the stream and play. Imagine some nice summer day like today. My three daughters are out playing in the water. And my oldest daughter takes the head of my youngest daughter, puts it under the water, and tries to drown her. Now, suppose I'm seeing what's happening. I'm close enough. I can wade out into the stream and rescue my youngest daughter. But I say, you know, I'm not causing this potential death. I'm, I'll, I'm just allowing it. I don't want to interrupt my oldest daughter's free will or constrain her in any way. So um, I'm just going to let my girl kill my other girl. Now, if that happened, my wife would not be happy. (laughs) No one in my subdivision would say, you know, that Tom, boy, he's an amazing father. What a great guy he is. They'd all say, look, Tom had the ability to prevent the drowning, but chose to allow it. And that's just not right. That's not what a loving person does. And yet, the vast majority of people I know, when we apply this logic to God, say, well, God could have stopped it, but God permitted it. God allowed us to use our free will to hurt someone. I say, no, we need to go a step further than God won't stop evil. We should say God simply can't single-handedly stop the evils in the world. And that can't word is the word that gets people like, what? God can't do something? That's just not God. God's sovereign, whatever they want to say. And uh, to those people, I like to point out that the Bible itself lists a lot of things that God can't do. God can't tell a lie, for instance. God can't be tempted, according to the book of James. God can't grow tired, according to the psalmist. God can't abandon us, according to Hosea. My favorite little passage is in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. And Paul says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful Because God cannot deny himself. There are things God can't do because to do them, God would be going against God's own nature, we might say. And the proposal that I have on the table is that God's very nature is love. And this love is self-giving and others empowering. And because of that, God's love is never controlling. That's this uncontrolling love of God idea that we've mentioned already. And so therefore, God simply can't control others. Not only free will others, but can't control other creatures, other entities, other things in the world. God can't control anyone or anything because God loves everyone and everything. And God's love is always uncontrolled how would you
0: answer people that then will say about um you know about god is they'll they'll always trot out that verse that says well god's ways are higher than our ways his thoughts are higher than our thoughts so we just can't understand why god would not do this but there has to be some bigger reason that would we can't comprehend that is only within the mind of god you know the mystery is outside of our pay range basically so You know, what what's your response to them?
1: And I just want to add in there. I've heard I've heard it called the Romans 828 Band-Aid. Yeah.
2: Uh, Yeah. 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 Well, my first response is to say I I want to I'm not claiming I've got God figured out. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) don't don't take me as, you know, thinking that I understand all mysteries in the world. Um, But my second answer is to say this. Okay, God's ways may be higher than our ways. I think they are higher than our ways. But our task is to present the best understanding of God we have available. Another way to put it is we should think about what model of God makes the best sense of our lives, of Scripture, of our moral intuitions, etc. And I think there's a better model on the table than the one that says God causes or even allows the unnecessary suffering, the pointless pain of the world. And so while I don't think I know everything about God and there's always some dimension of mystery, our task is to give, according to Scripture, an account of the hope we have within us. And I think some accounts that Christians give are just crappy. They suck. <laughs> I think Other accounts, I think, are much more w- winsome, more plausible. And here's the model I'm placing on the table, I say to these people. This is a God of love. This God loves everyone. But this God doesn't have the kind of omnipotent power that you've been told God has. God is strong. God is influential. I even say God is almighty. But God doesn't have the kind of controlling capacities you've assumed God has. In terms of Romans 8:28, I love that particular passage. Um. In my book called God Can't, I talk about the different ways the English translators have taken the Greek and given English translations. Uh, I learned that passage in the King James when I was a little boy. And it says, uh, you know, something like, we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, etc." And And that kind of, in that uh, translation of that, Kind of it's mysterious, you know, how some things and everything is going to work out in some way. The, another translation says we know that God causes everything to work out. And here it's not so much a mystery, but God is the cause of things. And I think that's especially problematic. The NIV changes the in and it says we know that God is in all things working for the good for those who love him. And I like that idea better. It sounds like God is in the midst of what's going on, not the cause of it, but in the midst of all the muck, the good and the bad, working to bring something good. But the end of that passage, that line says, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose or something like that. So my favorite translation is actually the Revised Standard Version. It sounds like the NIV, that God is working in the midst of things. But the very last phrase says this, God is working with those who are called according to his purpose or something like that, which suggests that we have a role to play and also suggests that God isn't just working good things for the good people, but is working for everybody and calling everyone to cooperate with that good work.
0: Yeah, I like that too. That's really good. Um. I think I ha- I have come to believe uh, about that verse about God's ways being higher than our ways. Um, you know, a lot of people use it as, you know, well, if even if something bad happens or God commands something bad in the Old Testament, it's OK because God commanded it. But, you know, I've come to believe that if anything, God is more loving and more generous and more compassionate and, you know, all around a better guy than I am. And yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, God's ways being higher than my ways. Yeah, it's true. He's, he's like thus so much better to the infinite degree than I am. And, you know, but I, so I cannot make sense of, of this evil or this, uh, uh, you know, seeing God commanding genocide of the Canaanites in the old Testament and saying, well, God's ways are higher than my ways, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: I like your interpretation. I mean, it sounds like, well, I think a lot of people are like me. They have a great respect for the Bible. They were probably taught when they were younger that the Bible is God's holy word. And they've interpreted that to mean everything in the Bible is exactly what God wanted and tells us the perfect 100% truth about who God is. But then as they grow older, they start to find these really difficult passages in the Bible. Most of them are in the Old Testament, but not all of them. Um, And then they see the witness of Jesus portraying God in a way that's so radically different than the way some other parts of the passage, other passages of Scripture talk about God. And so there's this real tension there. What do you do? Well, the out for a lot of people is to say, I see that tension. I can't make sense of it. I don't want to give up on any of it. So I'm going to appeal to mystery. I don't understand it because God's ways are bigger than mine. And I think there's real practical problems with that. Because one of the things it says is that when we see evil in our world, we're not quite sure whether or not God wants that evil or not. I mean, who knows? Maybe God really likes it when people starve to death because it's part of God's plan. Who are we to know God's ways? It's a mystery. I mean, that's the way people can think. I much prefer saying the dominant. Passages of scripture, themes of scripture, point to a God of perfect love. And it's most clearly seen in this Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm willing to bet the farm that God is perfectly loving. And I'm willing to say those passages that portray God as unloving are just plain wrong. They're wrong, I say, not because I think I'm smarter than everybody else or I'm some 21st century postmodern hermeneutical genius. The wrong based on the overall themes of Scripture and the witness of God we find in Christ.
0: Yeah, I think it was Pete Ends who said, "Why does why does the Old Testament say all these bad things about God?" And then his answer is because God let His kids write the story, <laughs> and you know, as opposed to God actually, you know, writing it, picking up the pen right. of the writer and writing it himself. Yeah, so you know, so there's, there's right. Written by humans. It's a human product. And, um, yeah, that was totally not what I was taught growing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, yep.
2: Or if it but, was know, dropped by written by humans, God made sure they got it right. <laughs> got it right. Yeah. Superintended <laughs> by the taught. Holy
0: spirit whatever. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, um, you know, this idea that, God is not controlling and doesn't um, doesn't cause or allow bad things to happen. Um, it it definitely changes how we approach suffering in the world. And you know, if you thought that God might have a higher purpose in that, um, you know, whatever the case may be, um, genocide in Rwanda or you know, whatever slaughter of whatever hap- however many you know millions of Jews during the Holocaust, well. That leaves, lets us off the hook in actually doing something about the suffering, right. you know, and that's definitely, you know, I, I don't see that that's what God wants of, of us at
2: all. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I realized that when you asked me that question about evil, I probably should have come at it from a little bit different perspective and given you what I think are five ideas that together... Answer that question well. Is it alright if I kind of lay those on you yeah. really quick? They yeah, have to actually do. they're in they're the chapters of my God can't book. So this is a <laughs> teaser, you might say. <laughs> okay. The first nice. one, the first chapter is what I've already mentioned. God can't single-handedly prevent evil. Not because God's a wimp or a weakling, but because love comes first in God and God's love is uncontrolled. So God can't do it single-handed. The second idea is that even though God can't stop it, God is present with us and is relational, is feeling with us the pain that we feel. And that's really important for a lot of people that God is not standing back saying, you know, sucks to be you, Chris. Sorry you're going through that tough time, but I'm not a part of it. God is present with us in the midst of suffering. The third idea says that God is not only present, but God is working to heal to the extent possible, but can't heal single-handedly. So God is in the mix, trying to bring to you know bring some kind of a positive result and heal that, but there has to be cooperation on our part, on our cells' part, our muscles in the world, and others. Or in those inanimate objects, they have to be aligned. They have to be conducive to the kind of healing God wants to do. And that's important, I think, to help people who are not healed. Um, I'm not blaming victims here. I'm not saying, you know, if you've been praying to God and asking for healing and you haven't been healed from your cancer, it's your fault. I'm not saying that. It very well could be that we cognitively are saying yes to God. But the factors and forces in our bodies, our cells and muscles, either aren't cooperating or don't have the capacity to cooperate in the way God wants for the healing. But that third that third um, aspect says God is trying to heal. The fourth says God is trying to squeeze something good from the bad God didn't want in the first place. So earlier in a conversation, I talked about, you know, People who say everything bad that happened, God permits to teach us a lesson or to build our character. And this fourth point says, yeah, God works with what happened to try to build our character or teach us a lesson. But God didn't set it up or allow it in order for that to happen. And then the final answer or the final portion of the answer says, God is calling you and me to play a role in overcoming evil in our lives and in the world. And God actually needs our cooperation. A lot of theologians today will say something like, well, God is inviting us to participate in what God is up to in the world. But in the back of their mind, they kind of have this view that, well, if we don't cooperate, God's still going to get it done somehow single handedly. And the view I have says, nope, your choices and lives really matter. God is depending upon you to do your part. You don't have the whole world on your shoulders, but you have a role to play if love is truly going to win. And I think that's a big part of the answer to uh, the problem of evil.
0: And that reminds me of the, the, the poem or prayer from Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body now, but yours, you know, no hands to feed the sick or to feed the hungry, you know, so we are his hands and feet.
2: Um, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that's really important. I mean, one of the most common questions I get from people who hear my proposal and then who think about it a while is this. They'll say, uh, look, if it's not loving for God to prevent evil because God can't, then is it loving for me to prevent evil? I mean, sometimes it seems like I'm able to. Like, you know, imagine you have a well, right now, my my three year old granddaughter is living at our house because my daughter and her husband are between uh, they're in transition. So they're living with us for a little while. Imagine if my three year old granddaughter started running toward the open stove that was super hot and was going to put her hands on this in the stove. Now, imagine I'm close enough. I can reach out and grab her hand and prevent her from burning herself. Wouldn't that be a loving thing to do? Well, I sure, certainly think it would be. Well, if I can do that, can't God do that? See many people? I mean, especially if God's more powerful than I am, I think God is more powerful. Well, the answer to that is that God doesn't have a body like you and I do. God is, according to the Christian tradition, incorporeal, which means bodiless. And so God is a universal spirit, we might say. And that means that we then become, if we respond to God's call, the spirit's call in our life, we can be God's hands and feet, but we can also refuse to be God's hands and feet. So um, we're not like robots for God. So when I see my three-year-old running toward the stove, if I respond to that urge to protect her by grabbing her arm, I can say that's God calling me, and in that moment I'm like God's hand, even though I'm not literally God, but I'm acting as God's hand in that situation.
1: It's like the the we can offer things to our directees as spiritual directors. We can, you know, offer an invitation, but they get to make the decision themselves. God is offering a better way, a more loving thing to do. That's that call to Reach out and grab your granddaughter, you know, um, and because uh, that's God can offer and we can cooperate or not.
2: You sound like participation. relational thinker there, Maggie. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> thanks, I guess, maybe. I don't know. <laughs>
2: well, the truth is that open and relational theology, it just fits the best of our practice. I mean, it's like it's the way the vast majority of people already live. Like, you know, I know some, I have some friends who are hardcore Calvinists who think that God predestined everything from all eternity. And yet when we go to prayer time, they ask God to heal their grandmother. Well, if God's already predestined everything from the beginning of time, their prayer for their grandmother doesn't make much sense at all. But they pray as if they're an open (laughs) theist. They pray as if their prayers actually might make a difference in what happens in the future. So most people live their life like they're open and relational theologians, even though they may have some ideas in their heads that contradict it.
0: Yeah, I don't know who it was that said, um, pray as though it's all left up to God, but act as though it's all left up to you. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember who it was, but that, you know, it, it, they kind of contradict, but it still yeah. kind of makes sense.
2: I can agree with that as long as we take out that little word all, and then I'm yeah. okay with that. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right.
1: It's so interesting. In the last three days, this is now the third time that this theme of suffering has come up in some conversation in my life. Literally three days in a row. I had my small group two days ago and I did a quiet day and learned about the saints and what they learned about suffering was part of it and dying and all the things uh, yesterday. And now we're talking about it today. And my small group, we kind of, Decided to like come to this idea that hope is really powerful, you know, and uh, that when you see suffering and when you go through a hard time, there's not always going to be that pretty bow on the end of it that look, God, oh, this is what God taught me. Like, I can trust that I'm going to end up being thankful for this or whatever. And I walked through a season that I mean, it was the most pivotal circumstance that's ever happened in my life. And my relationship with God changed for, for the better through a horrible, my dad passed away suddenly and how uh, God, um, this, this is going to sound like, uh, you know, like we're robots in a way. So uh, forgive the language, but how God orchestrated for me to be where I was when I got the news to get all of the support that I needed to know that it kind of goes back to that first point from God can't of uh, God just needed me to know that God was with me mm-hmm. in the midst of all of this. And uh, mm-hmm. and to me, that is enough to be the pretty bow that mm-hmm. God is with me in it, even though it's not pretty <laughs> and it's definitely not like tied up and now it's done, you know, put it on the shelf, but that we get to uh, um, choose to participate with god that is present that has promised to be present with us i don't know how that sits with you i'd love to yeah, hear i'm gonna yeah.
2: agree with part of it and push back with another part how's that do be? it <laughs> do it i love it <laughs> um, i think saying that god is with us in the midst of our suffering is essential super important and um just again kind of to to uh, to criticize some other theologies. Um, it's hard to imagine that a God being with us and suffering with us from the perspective of so many Christian theologians in the past. And some of them thought God was their deist and they thought God was out there and not involved. But others thought God was involved, but kind of as an observer, but not someone who really empathized with us. And that's what relational theology says. Now for the pushback. <laughs> Bring it on. Um, <laughs> I think for a lot of people thinking that God was present with you and had the power to prevent your pain, your evil, but chose not to, that sounds like a God who's not perfectly loving. Yeah. Let me throw in a hypothetical situation. Let's say uh, you're, you said you're in Atlanta. Atlanta is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Atlanta. Let's say that uh, next weekend I'm flying into Atlanta and, uh, The three of us are going to go have coffee together, and we do. And We're leaving, and we're driving out of Atlanta, out kind of the countryside, and you're a half a mile ahead of me in your car. And all of a sudden, I see your car swerve, go this way and that way, and then start tumbling side over side down the road. And it lands in the side of the road, and I drive up next to you, and I come up to you, and there you are. The car is laying on your body, and it's suffocating you. You're gasping for air. And I come up and I say, Maggie, Maggie, what happened? And you say, Tom, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And I realize that the way the car is positioned on you, I actually have the leverage to push the car off your body and save your life. But instead I say, you know, Maggie, let me hold your hand. I just want to be present with you at this moment. Now, would that be the loving thing? Or would the loving thing be to push off the car. <laughs> I think most people think pushing off the car to rescue you, your family, I'm guessing would think that was the more loving thing <laughs> than just holding yeah. your hand and being present with you. So I want to I want to agree that God being present with us is crucial. But I also want to say we need to take the next step and ask the question, could God prevent the evil that happens to us single-handedly? I don't think God can. Other people think God could, but for some mysterious reason allows it how what do you think of that maggie
1: um well i think uh the idea is kind of that i was thinking of it's it's like my dad died i can't change that right or right, the car right. flipped on on top of me i can't change that like and right. uh, there is something to do about what happened with the car, but there isn't something to do with what happened with that. My dad passed away, but the community that came around me literally in the five minutes after I actually less than that, two minutes after I got the news was I think part of God, they were um, participating in the invitation to go and be compassionate with me. So I think that is a, just a different view of like, well, since it happened, what can we do now? We can be a light in the world and God is with me as I'm grieving.
2: Yeah. That sounds like a combination of the second idea I had, which is God mm-hmm. is present with us. And the fourth that God is working to squeeze whatever good mm-hmm. can be squeezed from a bad mm-hmm. situation. God didn't want in the first place.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Which I'm then like... implies that it's, the, the future piece of it, you know, that we are yes. participating and cooperating with God yep. for the future. So I think that actually does fit well into, it you know, and, and somebody I read, I heard some song, Laura Story, I think um, I heard this on the radio a while ago. I'm pretty sure it was Laura Story that said this, that looking back on her journey, if she had the chance to rewrite it, you know, she obviously would not have put her you know, the certain parts of her journey in it, because that was really painful. But since it happened, she is grateful to be able to look back and see where God was and see how God transformed her in the midst of all of the things that she went through. And I would I say like the same it. thing about my dad's passing. And and now like I'm a mentor for other young women who have lost a parent and I walk with them in their grief journey. And that's something that, I wouldn't have been able to do had it not been for what I experienced and also experiencing God with me in the midst of it.
2: yeah, I like all of that. The only thing that I sort of chafe against is when people tell that story and then say, Well, I guess that evil was a part of God's plan for my life because that sounds like God either caused that or allowed it. and I just can't look rape victims in the eye and say, You know, your are God wanted that as a part of God's good plan. You say, no.
1: Yeah. God no, genocide. I would punch you in the face if you said that to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> You know, yeah, I agree. <laughs>
0: so Tom, kind of going back to that question of agency and, 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 um, uncontrolling love of God and how we are, you know, it really affects how we interact with the world around us. How does that really uh, affect our prayer life? And, You know, how does one pray now uh, in light of these ideas?
2: Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, I think the picture of God or the model of God that I've been talking about, the open relational model that is God's uncontrolling love, actually makes far better sense out of prayer. And here I'm assuming you mean petitionary prayer. Um, It makes far better sense out of petitionary prayer than the alternatives. And to, to to justify that claim, <laughs> let me um, let me talk about four ways of thinking about God in prayer. And the fourth one will be the one I am advocating, and the first three will be ones I oppose. Okay. <laughs> okay, First model. Um, this is I'll call it John Calvin's model. God is predestined, foreknown from all eternity, everything that's going to happen from you know from the beginning to end. Not a lot of people have that view, but some do. And I just can't make sense of petitionary prayer if that's the way God is. Now, like I said earlier, uh, if God already knows with absolute certainty and has predestined what the future is going to be, then my prayers asking God to do something don't really have any effect on God because God's already decided how it's all going to turn out. So at least me personally and a lot of people I know can't be motivated to pray a petitionary prayer if god has already foreknown and foreordained the future.
1: That was a big part of my uh, like de- one deconstruction journey that really? I went down was saying, well why does prayer matter? Yes. Oh, oh it's just it's just to change my heart. Okay, but god already knew that that was going to change my heart. Yes. So like but if i don't pray, god knew i wasn't going to pray and therefore there's no change like You know, just trying to like make sense of how the dominoes are going to fall. It just made me go, what's the point of prayer?
2: Yep. I tell you, earlier I talked about different paths people take to open a relational theology. A lot of people come to this position because they think about prayer.
1: Yeah, I believe that.
2: Yeah. Okay, so the second model, and this one I think is a lot more common amongst Christians, I know. Um, It says this. God doesn't predestine the future, but God could single handedly fix any situation or bring about any outcome God wants to bring about. This means then that, oh, and they also think God is perfectly loving and knows everything that can, you know, is knowable. This means then that God could heal your aunt's cancer. God could protect you when you pray for protection when you're going off on a you know flying off on a plane so it doesn't crash whatever God could single-handedly do whatever God wants to do now it's hard for me to get motivated to pray in that scenario also because God's smarter than I am God's perfectly loving surely God would want to do the best in any scenario then why should I even pray because God's smarter and more loving I should just bank on the fact that God's going to do the right thing. In fact, this second model can present God as if God's sitting on the sidelines saying, you know, Maggie, you got to pray 79 times before I'm going to get off my butt and do something. You got to earn this, sister. You got to earn it. Okay, maybe you don't have to, but put it on the prayer chain. Unless the whole church is praying, I'm not going to get off my butt and help out which, of course, doesn't portray God as perfectly loving.
1: Well, and it totally like undoes the whole idea of like unmerited grace and not earning right. <laughs> you know, not earning your salvation.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so what a lot of people do is they see those first two models and they go to a third model. And I especially hear this in more liberal and mainline churches. And when I speak there, they'll say this. Well, prayer doesn't change God. It just changes me. So the idea here is that I'm going to pray. I don't think God's going to answer or respond or be relationally affected. But me thinking things out might change my neural structures, might change my habits, my thoughts of mind. Maybe I'll be a better person. Well, I think prayer can do that. But I think we should ask more of prayer. I think biblical authors and most Christians have thought more is happening than just some sort of self-therapy. So the fourth model that I advocate, I think this is the best way to think of petitionary prayer. It has several assumptions built into it. One assumption I've already talked about. God is relational. Everything that we do has some kind of influence on God, and that includes our prayers. Our prayers actually make a difference to God. Secondly, We live in an interrelated universe, and our prayers not only affect God, but they affect ourselves and others and our environment to varying degrees. Third, and perhaps the most crucial, God experiences time moment by moment like we do, which means that our actions in one moment can open up new possibilities, new avenues, new opportunities for God and others to act in the next moment our prayers don't make god able to control others it doesn't enable god to single-handedly bring about outcomes but it becomes new relational data new information for god new action god takes into god's own experience and then responds neck differently in the next moment and the next moment and the next moment because we prayed and that means our petitional prayers really matter. Again, they don't guarantee outcomes or even enable God to guarantee outcomes, but in a relational matrix, our petitionary prayers can actually make the world different in the future.
1: I feel like that's really good motivation to uh, cooperate with God. (laughs) Yes.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of that cooperation, at least in my life, my prayer life, I I am um, oftentimes I'm asking God for wisdom. I'm saying things like, God, I commit today to once again live a life of love, to follow your example, to imitate you. Now, give me insights. Give me nudges, inclinations, intuitions about how love might look like, what love might look like today. Right now, in this moment, as I think about my day and I imagine what might happen I start going through my scenario in my mind of things I might be doing. I I say, God, give me insights on how I'm going to love my wife, how I'm going to deal with the people who are coming to mow my lawn and mess up, mess around with my trees today or whatever. Um, And then moment by moment, that helps me sort of recall what I said earlier. It doesn't guarantee I'm always going to be loving it doesn't mean that I turn into a robot and God is now in control of my life and just moves me around like a palm on a chessboard. It means that as a relational actor in relation with a relational God, now I'm open to being receiving the kind of loving nudges God gives.
1: So question for you and this is, I totally have an agenda here. So just so you know, like this is, I'm like, Ooh, like basically spiritual director me right now. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so uh, because of all of my, like, why does prayer matter? You know, all of that, obviously like, I feel like my, what traditional prayer looks like, what people think of when they think of prayer is, you know, petitioning and intercessory and all of that. I don't, do that. <laughs> I haven't done that in a very long time, but what I have done is I consider my prayer time with God to be listening for God. So it's way less of a two-way conversation and more of a I listen for God, and uh, I might have a comment or two, you know. And but we just it's more of a conversation where God does most of the talking. Um, how does that? I don't like, tell me, (laughs) what do you think of that? (laughs) Is that participating? Is that, you know?
2: (laughs) Definitely participating. Yeah. It sounds similar to my prayer life. I don't, when I was a kid, I used to pray for missionaries overseas all the time. And now I rarely do that. Um, I care about missions. I care about those people. But I used to think that somehow my prayers would, um, you know, allow God to control other people. And I don't think that anymore. My prayers could become data for God to use overseas. But it's just a lot harder for me to imagine how that works now. And so, you know, I think there's other ways I can cooperate with God and make uh, more of a difference. But I do ask God. I petition God. Especially when it comes to helping me deal with my own issues. uh, Trying to overcome my bad habits. I petition God to give me insights and try to solve problems I have. Um, So there's still some petitioning going on. And my prayer each day usually begins in a breathing exercise that really is not so much about petitioning, it's I breathe and I imagine breathing in God, so I just take a big breath. And then once I can't breathe in anymore, I breathe out and I imagine love. I just say love. And I do that for a a little while. And then my mind starts going into some of the things I think I might be doing for the day. And I start to set my intentions and my purposes. And so I'll breathe in God and I'll breathe out. I'm writing a book today. I want to be the most clear and articulate and loving that I can. I breathe in God and then I breathe out, I'm going to dinner with my family tonight. And sometimes that can be difficult. So I want patience and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I'm still doing some petitioning, but it's not like the kind of petitioning that, you know, like you said, you may have done when you were younger or, you know, put these prayer requests on the prayer chain at church kind of thing.
0: You know, um, going back to the The idea of of praying for the missionary, I think it's, now I think it would be a whole lot more beneficial overall to, um, if you actually called that missionary or you emailed that missionary and said, I'm really thinking about you today. And, you know, I'm just, I just wanted you to know that you're in my my thoughts and prayers and um, instead of just praying to God that this missionary will do X, Y, or Z or stay out of danger or whatever, you know them knowing that you're that you're consciously thinking about them has something so has some effect on them
2: it reminds me of what uh, James says you know when this he says the person comes to your church who is poor you don't say you know God bless you go in your way you, you try right. to help them and saying God bless you is kind of like saying a prayer you don't just pray for them you try to do what you can to help them meet their needs and so the same would be there if missionaries needing our encouragement calling them up, sending them an email, that might be the more effective way to be God's hands and feet, to, to be God's prayers, you might even say, for their benefit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm thinking about what you said earlier about how God has no body, and I have a picture of an icon that I like to look at often, and I, the idea is that Jesus literally has no feet on this icon (laughs) and he's Jesus is holding on to this father um, who's an abbot or something. I can't remember. I need to look that up, but it is so that it's Jesus, you know, working through him, like depending on, Mm. on the father. And this is one of the oldest icons from the Orthodox church. Um, I think Mm. maybe it's from like 800 AD or something like that. So, um, but like, it's, that's exactly what it is, is how can, we take our hands and our feet as the hands and feet of Jesus and go and encourage and do um, you know, uh, Jesus second, can pray. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> the, uh, the second piece of evidence that you're already an open and relational. <laughs> <That's
1: right. laughs> uh, oh my gosh. Uh, mm-hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like. To, I do like to think that I am open to, uh, anything that could be related to God, <laughs> you know, because yeah, I yeah. feel like anyone that says that they have the corner market on who God is or who God can hang out with, or, um, you know, I know for sure. I, Peter Enns wrote a book called the sin of certainty. So the, right. you know, the, the moment that you say, no, this is the right way and you're wrong. The, the less like Jesus you are, right. I think yep. that's my yep. opinion. So, I, I always think this is how I describe deconstruction um, and there's a lot of different ways, but one of them is kind of like, if you take like, uh, imagine all the little pieces of theology that you have in your hand and kind of like maybe little scraps of paper and they all have things written on them and you kind of look at it and you go, Oh, let me think how, what do I think of this? Okay. I like this. This can stay on my bookshelf. All right. And this one, mm, no, that's, that doesn't fit my image of God anymore and get rid of that or um i'm going to rephrase this and put this back and and i that's why i just think any the more paper that you can go through in your hand and say i like this or i don't like this the the more just staying open-handed to what theology comes to add into your hand and so like there's a lot of beautiful things about open and relational theology that i'm going to like sift through and see what continues to fit my image of God, that is perfect love. Um, And so far I haven't heard anything that doesn't. (laughs) You know, (laughs) If you start with perfect
2: love, it's going to be hard to find something in open and relational theology that contradicts that. It really is because that's basically the starting point. Now there's differences of opinion on how that all sort of plays out. So I'm not saying that everybody in the open and relational camp has the exact same views on everything, but Generally speaking, if you start with God's love, it's going to sound an awful lot like an open relation of God.
0: Now, who or what is God to you now, Tom?
2: To me, well, let me, before I say what this is, let me say, let me prepare the listener. Some of what I'm about to say is going to sound pretty traditional. You're going to be surprised. Others are going to sound pretty radical. You're going to say, I'm not sure. So this is who God is to me. I think God is actually a person. Sounds pretty traditional. God is personal, you might say. I don't think God has a localized body, like a huge body somewhere. I think God's a universal spirit, but a spirit that's relational. This God loves everyone, everything, all the time. In fact, love is God's first and logically foremost attribute. God is also active everywhere. So not just passive sitting on the sidelines, God is active and in that action, acts for what's good, beautiful, truthful, and calls upon us to respond. This actor is always relational and therefore our choices matter. This God is strong, but never controlling. This God knows everything, but isn't sure with absolute certainty what's going to happen in the future. This God has always existed and will always exist. And this God, above all, wants the salvation of everyone and everything. He'll never send anybody to hell, but also will never force anyone into heaven. Always calls us to live a life of love. And because it's everlastingly presented that we can love, we have the genuine hope that one day we and all of creation will say yes to this God. Maybe that's longer than what you expected. I love it. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's good. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, Tom, this was great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, I'm sure you, uh, our listeners have lots to think about, as do we. And um, how can people connect with you, Tom?
2: I'm available on most social media channels and pretty involved there. I direct the Center for Open Relational Theology if you want to get resources there. Um, given our conversations today, I think uh, I would recommend maybe two books to folks who want to do some follow-up. The one we've mentioned is the God Can't Book, which is written for a general audience. You don't have to be a theologian to understand it. And it addresses the, the big five answers to the problem of evil. And the second one is this new book that's coming out in July called Open and Relational Theology, which is also written for the average person and uh, goes into a little bit more depth uh, of what Open and Relational Theology is all about.
0: Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that book. Um, I appreciate you sending us a preview of it. And I really I really like the the resources list at the very end. I mean, ah, it is, good. It, it could be my reading list for the next decade. You
2: know, so. <laughs> that's right. I love it. Yeah.
0: So that was really great. Thank you so much for that. And, um, and you, you also um, lead a, a doctoral program. If, if people are really interested in digging deep into that, tell us just a little bit about that before we yeah, end.
2: This is a, a doctoral program that follows the Oxford style of education, which means that each individual student works with me on particular projects, doing readings, uh, aiming for a, you know, a dissertation at the end, And it's fully online uh, so that you don't have to move anywhere. And so we have we go course by course. It's tailor-made for each student and scheduling is dependent on the student schedule. And uh, what's really great, too, is because it's online and our, uh, excuse me, because it's online and our seminary uh, doesn't have like a big building and a bunch of property paid to pay for, we can offer it uh, less expensively than most doctoral programs. So it's a doctorate in theology and ministry and open in relation to and relational theology. I'd love to talk to anybody about that who is interested.
3: Are you ready for the next step? Is it time to pursue your doctorate? Northwind Theological Seminary offers a fully online doctoral program to help you move ahead. This DTM, Doctorate in Theology and Ministry, centers on issues in open and relational theology. World-renowned theologian Thomas J. Ord directs this program. You'd work directly with Dr. Ord to explore open and relational topics that interest you. As a fully online startup institution, Northwind's doctoral program is far less expensive than other programs. Scholarships are also available. As a doctoral student, you set your own pace. You can work around your personal, family, or work schedules, and you'll likely finish the degree in less than three years. The Doctorate in Theology and Ministry is co-sponsored by the Center for Open and Relational Theology, which Dr. Ord directs. You'll have access to Center's resources and get to know its community of scholars, activists, practitioners, and educators. For more information, see the seminary website or search Open and Relational Theology at Northwind. It's time to pursue your doctoral degree. Reach out to Northwind now